I think you might be a design activist. Are you a design activist? What's a design activist? That was, I think you just answered that. <laughs> This is Designing for Humanity, a podcast by SY Partners about designing a future that's made for all of us and the best in us. I'm Rhi Norgaard, and I'm talking with some of the most interesting people I know about how we as designers can tackle the most complex challenges our society faces right now. How can we use design to reimagine the ways we interact with each other and with the world? I'm here to start the conversation about what new ways of thinking and methods are needed. So today I'm super happy to be joined by Kat Holmes, whose work I've been following as she's been pioneering new methods of inclusive design. Currently through her company, Kata, did I get that right? Yes. Great. And previously, as head of inclusive design at Microsoft, she's truly rethinking how we tackle exclusion and bias in the products and digital experiences we create. Kat's award-winning inclusive design toolkit is widely known as a radical evolution of design thinking and practices, and she was recently recognized as one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. Wow. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. Yeah, so glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. I'd love to start with asking you how you got into the work you do. What is your calling as a designer and what I mean specifically a calling to work on inclusion in design? Oh, such a good question. So for me, the when I look back, the work on inclusion really has been about a human led approach to design. And that's started early in my career. I mean, you know, I went to school originally to study orthopedic biomechanics. Mm. I was going to create prosthetic limbs. That's mm -hmm. what I wanted to, to do. That's what I wanted to design. And it was really about this fit between human beings and the objects around us, the, the tools that extend us, that, that assist us. It's just always been an area of interest and focus. And I took the the engineering path early because it really helped me understand how things are made. I wanted, I studied the material science of that and uh, what goes into at the very smallest kind of detail, making that those, those products, those prosthetics really feel like they belong with the human being as opposed to, you know, very medicalized objects. Mm -hmm. So, but after school, as many of us do, I never pursued that as a career. And so it wasn't until I arrived at Microsoft after a series of companies that I'd worked at that I really started to focus on artificial intelligence. And so when I talk about inclusive design, often, you know, many people assume that you start with the basis in accessibility. And that's, I had no background in that. There was never, it wasn't required training in school. It wasn't required as an employee at any of the companies I worked at. And so my entry point was really through thinking about the design of, of an AI at Microsoft called Cortana. And because there were no tools at the time, it was about five years ago, no tools at the time for doing voice conversational design, we really had to make it up as we went. And one of the things that became a real resource for us was meeting with people who really are personal assistants or assistants to other human beings and understanding how a human being creates a great experience for another human being. And um, through that, we realized there's so much expertise that people have in how they work with each other that, um, that we could learn from as technologists. And another example that came up in that project is there are people who have been talking to their computers 
for decades. And it's primarily people who used Dragon, a program called Dragon, mm-hmm. because they have limited use yeah. of, um, because they can't use a keyboard or a mouse, yeah. and it's uh, limited use of their hands. Or people who are blind who've been using speech recognition and speech-based technology with screen readers for many years. So my path to inclusion really started with seeing the huge void in resources for designers and engineers and how to think about the topic. And then marrying that with some really interesting gnarly problems uh, I was trying to work on at the time and, and realizing that human beings had more to teach us than the technology and kind of even the traditional design thinking methods that we've all come to know. Maybe was that the time when you connected your what you really cared about and knew something about to impact the p- potential impact you could have as a designer? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there was a moment. And I remember, because again, it, it wasn't a known subject matter. It wasn't There wasn't mm-hmm. a book to read on, mm-hmm. on this topic. And so there's a lot of academic work, but there wasn't something that was applied to digital experiences and how you would do this in a digital environment. And so there was a moment as I was going through this and kind of piecing it together that I realized how much there, how much work there was to do, how many things had been missed, and that really this would be the work that I would do for the rest of my life because there was just so much to do <laughs> and and meaningful places, places like one small, simple, thoughtful design addition to applied towards a problem could make a huge difference in someone's life. And sometimes it was taking technology that already existed but had never been framed and applied in a way towards a mismatch or disability that someone experiences. So it became a, a whole playground of places to learn and uh, that the outcomes really did make a difference in people's lives. So in, in your experience, both at, at Microsoft and in the work that you're doing now, where does intention fit in? So you're talking about lots of missed opportunity and places where we maybe have data and knowledge and we're not applying it towards solutions. So so can you talk a little bit about where intention comes in oh, for you? Question. Yeah. You know, I think the things that we make, this is a very well-known thing, but I'm going to just state it anyways. The things that we make carry a mark of the maker, right? They, they, There's a translation that happens, and biases are one of those things that translate into the things that we make. One of the most concrete types of biases that we don't always think about, um, but that we talk about in this space, is ability bias, right? Ability bias is one of those things that, you know, of course, we're going to design something that we ourselves can see, or that we can hear to our own abilities, um, ends up working, the things we make then end up working well for people who have similar circumstances or similar abilities, but it ends up excluding a much broader group of people. And that's not just by ability and disability, it's by, you know, in a situational, you know, I happen to be in a loud, crowded environment and now I can't hear my phone ring. Well, it's because it was designed to work in a perfectly serene, quiet environment. You know, so these things that all of us have these moments where we have these kind of mismatches with the biases that are built into the things that that we use. You know, bias isn't inherently good or bad. It is what it is. Um, we can try to evolve them, but we really can't get rid of them. I mean, ability of bias is a good example of that. Um, but what we can do is recognize at least what the bias is and then what's missing 
And recognizing what's missing is really then about matching up with people who have an ability bias that's different than my own, right? So how do I match up with someone whose ability biases are really for speech-based interfaces Mm -hmm. to complement my text-based bias? So I think about intention through the lens of what's the problem you're trying to solve and which biases do you bring to the table and which ones are missing, and then actively seeking out and marrying those together by increasing the participation, the inclusion of who's making that solution. So with awareness, we can have intention and then we can really practice and and transform what it is that we bring into the solutions that we create for others. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can think about a time or a good example of of that seeing and and experiencing that in practice. Yeah, that's um, one of my favorite examples was when we were working on a text-based interface. Like, you know, just even think about basic texting. And an important and critical element of inclusive design is that it's including people who are historically excluded from the design process. You bring them into the design process and um, making that a central part of how you solve problems. And so with with this text example. So we, we'd met with a woman who was hard of hearing and she was conveying a story about her relationship with her best friend. And her best friend had moved to the East Coast and um, he had a deep voice and she was losing her ability to hear the lower ranges of a uh, human voice. And so it became harder and harder to stay connected. But what was interesting in that conversation, she said she didn't, it wasn't that she missed the functional elements of the conversation. Like those are things you can get in text. What she missed was the inflection and the Mm. emotion that's conveyed that comes from the conversation. And that all that gets stripped away when, uh, you know, things are typed in text. And so playing with how can we bring that into the expression of the text itself how can that be something you can play with to convey different types of meaning in the design of the words, of the fonts, of the of the pacing of the words as they appear on the screen? And so thinking about those starting points, you know, and, and what those emotional elements are, the and those often end up being the most important things to these experiences, but that um, if we just set out to design a better text application, we would have asked different questions. We would have tried to solve different problems. And instead, starting with the story of the human-to-human interaction between this woman and her best friend gave us a starting point of what actually was most important was the meaningful emotions that come through in those conversations. So how do we design that? So that's, I think, you know, there's many, many examples of, of thinking about what kinds of mismatch, what kinds of exclusion happen, not just functionally, not just access, but emotionally and in our relationships with each other. Awesome. So, Kat, you're writing a book on inclusion and design. Yes. Um, what is, um, what's, well, you're done with it. I'm, yeah, I right? am done. You're I, done. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. That <laughs> must feel amazing. I'm still detoxing. Yeah. <laughs> And it's going to be published soon. So the book that I'm writing um, is called Mismatch, and it's focused on how inclusion shapes design, technology, and society. Um, It's being published by MIT Press in September of 2018. That's amazing. I'm very much looking forward to that. 
Can you describe what that process was like a little bit and how the process maybe allowed you to evolve your your point of view while you're doing it? What did you learn, basically, oh my gosh. is what I'm asking yes. you. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, so I thought I was going to write a book about inclusion, and I ended up writing a book about exclusion because exclusion, in comparison, is crystal clear. It's sharp. We've all experienced exclusion in our lives, and we know how it feels. We know what it looks like and, and how it makes us feel. So um, <laughs> it evolved into understanding the cycle that perpetuates exclusion, um, the cycle between who's making a solution, who they're assuming is using that solution, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how they make it, what tools we're using, and then why are we making this solution in the first place. And thinking about that cycle and asking the question, now if we can understand how exclusion is built in to these different parts of the cycle, can we start to shift it towards inclusion in different ways? And back to, you know, we talk about ability biases being one example of what I'm calling an exclusion habit. You know, can we shift that exclusion habit to an inclusion habit by, again, recognizing the ability biases in others and, and complementing them with our own? So that process was... One of the greatest creative challenges of my life, I liken it to, I have, I have two children, both birthed in different ways, and I liken this to my third child, but birthed through my face. Right. Like, that's how it <laughs> felt. It was a very intense mm-hmm. process, um, but wonderful. And it was, I learned way more than I expected, and um, I met an amazing community of people along the way. Is there anything else you want to you want to talk about in relation to your book? Is there something that you want to say or something an aspect of that book that comes up for you in the context of this conversation or so in the book one of the things I had to contend with right in the beginning was that inclusion is often categorized as a nice thing to do and I think it ties to your conversation on designing for humanity because there's sometimes a distinction made between social good and business benefit. And, you know, inclusion being a sharp example of that, sometimes to its own detriment, when we treat it as a um, just, just the right thing to do, it's just the right thing to do to be inclusive, that it brings out our sympathies and, you know, which is sometimes a very dangerous place to design from. And it brings out our own assumptions and biases and power dynamics and, you know, separating us from people that we design for. And so one of the things I really wanted to underscore early was that inclusion is not nice. And it's it's hard work. It's battling for rights and, and it's it's working through tough problems. But that when we can make it a central way of working, when we can get the methods and the tools of putting it right at the heart of our engineering processes, of our design processes, then we can start to think differently about the business benefits and the economic case and the the growth opportunities. And so there's a shift, I think, as we think about designing for humanity in all of these places at great scale, that we really, as designers, also need to shape the language around that, that conversation so that it moves it away from the benefactor, I'm doing a nice thing, and really to the central, I'm doing a necessary thing in a, a 
multitude of spaces that desperately need uh, a human and humanized approach to some really tough problems. And this, I love that you're mentioning language because uh, it's so important and really powerful when imagining new ways of doing things and new frameworks. We yeah. also need new language for the most part. And that's perhaps where words like fairness and equity can really help us move from the the sympathetic frame into a place where we're actually seeing and feeling the life that we want to have and therefore we want it for everyone else or what we want for others, we also want for ourselves. So given that you've mapped out a cycle and the relationships and the moments that make a difference in this cycle, is there a limit to what we can take responsibility for as designers when it comes to inclusion? What do we not have and where do we need partnerships and are they there for us now or do we need to make them? I did want to play in this in this book with an expanded definition of designers. Great. And, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. that taking the approach of anybody who's solving a problem on behalf of another human being or in service of um, other human beings. The key responsibility that um, underlies inclusive design is, has, it really starts with the World Health Organization's definition of disability. Mm -hmm. um, it's the social definition of, uh, the social model of disability that's defined as a mismatch and in interaction between the features of a person's body and the features of the environment in which they live, which squarely for me as a designer, put responsibility on every choice that I make is either raising or lowering those barriers between people in the world around them. And I think that whether you're planning a dinner party or designing a complex software interface, all the choices that go into that really do produce an inclusive or an exclusionary result. That is squarely the responsibility. Yeah. So one of the things I'm thinking about and one of the reasons for exploring that topic in, in this podcast is that I think with the kinds of problems that we're invited to solve or to, to help to think about and solve here, we're finding added dimensions of solving for very big problems that are systemic in ways that maybe even the term inclusion or exclusion doesn't cover or that we can't cover under that. Mm. So let's say migration on a worldwide level. We know more. We have lots of data. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can see and we can understand the effects of a suggested solution. We can test it and deploy it and, and we can we can know a lot about the world around us. I Yes, that makes so much sense to me. That especially... Um, you know, the design of, there's a lot of conversation around system design these days and, and what that even means, what that right. is. I think, you know, very fortunate to be in a, you know, in a position where I can work on a lot of these problems that have no, there are no guardrails and guide rails and to-do lists. <laughs> yeah, you know, thinking about uh, the role of design and machine learning and the systems right. that dictate the behavior of, you know, self-driven, self-learning machines. Like, where do we start as designers um, to even practice in that space? I so I absolutely agree that we are at a really interesting moment. And also, it's a little terrifying at moments when you think about there's so much we don't know, but how great is it to be 
in those conversations and that, you know, there's recognition across all disciplines that the role of design is important to the formation of these, these new territories, these new unchartered spaces. But what to do once we get there, that's the part that ta- it takes a lot of courageous, creative adventurers <laughs> to, to make sense of that space. And so thinking about what are the skills that really drive learning and asking questions, um, asking, you know, meaningful questions. Those are things that are really uh, the, the new toolkit for designers. I love that. If you, if you take inclusion or inclusive design as a platform, and it's pretty expansive, right? Like yeah. we're, we're talking very expansively about designers and what we can do and what we can solve and for lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the opportunities to connect with either political movements or movements in science or in business uh, on human rights to create an even bigger platform. What I love about inclusive design is I've been introduced to so many more dimensions of activism than mm. I ever thought. And I and you know I grew up in the Bay Area. Like I, I had a pretty good life introduction to, you know, civic and civil and um, diversity, you know, led uh, fights for <laughs> for mm-hmm. human rights. And something about this work on inclusive design has really unified, I think, or found threads, maybe is a better way, finding threads across these communities and conversations. One thing that I've really has been a tension in working on inclusive design is identity, you know, is a strong place for creating impact and and activist um, work, especially in communities that have been excluded and and underrepresented. And, And so the thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is the role of identity in designing for particular right. problems or designing for inclusion. And, you know, there are groups that I'll um, meet with who consider inclusive design entirely a gender-based conversation, and there's groups that consider inclusive design entirely a disability identity conversation or accessibility conversation. And I think that doing this work in so many, being in so many places at once and having the discomfort of knowing that there are places where it stretches and there are places where really there's distinctly an identity-based conversation that needs to happen and requires focus. And then there's times where you really do need to have the broad conversation and connect a lot of these ideas together. So it's something that I'm, I'm navigating and learning about. What are the connections between Black Lives Matter and disability rights movement. Okay, where where are the places where the collective work of those two movements is is greater than the individual? And um, we, it's necessary to have those conversations because that's how human beings really are. You know, human beings are not one dimension of identity or anything, but that when we, there are times we need to separate because we have to drive sharp focus. And there's times where we need to connect and blur the lines. Thank you for that. Yeah. That was a really 
That's a really meaningful response to that because we tend to have very binary conversations and, and because I think it is... Mm-hmm. It's difficult and threatening sometimes to even try to connect. So it um, is, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It can feel like a uh, taking away from something, right? Which is which I understand. Yeah, and uh, as do I. So I think you might be a design activist. Are you a design activist? What's a design activist? That was. I think you just answered that <laughs> <laughs> because I, you have you've described in in several ways um, now already how how activism and design comes together mm-hmm. for you yeah and it's both in your upbringing probably it's very um, much as, like, yeah, yeah no as, as a way to yeah as a way to problem solver or something that you, you you know well along with your knowledge deep knowledge and skill and training from you know from school and your work and yeah and what happens when you put the two together like you're like unpacking me <laughs> it's, it's interesting so I have always lacked a word to describe what I do for a living but yeah that's an interesting term to think you know I hadn't really internalized that before but I think you're onto something Aha. <laughs> <laughs> um that's what's so lovely about conversations like these because they wander and we're both allowed to make connections that we wouldn't otherwise. That's right. And that is, to me, incredibly joyful. Having worked in tech and in the Bay Area specifically for a long time, Mm -hmm. why is inclusion so important here and now? The thing that I'm, I'm noticing is the word inclusion has risen to the top of a lot of companies, but what to do next is still a huge disconnect for people. Um, The traditional ways of diving into that conversation is to think about, and again, this is from a historical perspective, you know, demographic diversity and representation in a company, which is certainly critical and important. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot of tools, there's not a whole lot of guides on, on what to do next. And literally in a meeting with a company yesterday, and they talked about they have three areas of inclusion they're focused on. I think this is very common across a lot of companies, so I'll just share it here. But mm-hmm. they have workforce, workplace, and then marketplace and the things that they make. And most of their efforts have started in workforce, you know, the makeup of their teams. And so they've been focused on their hiring practices and, and the, increasing the diversity of their teams. Workplace has gotten some attention in their company. It's kind of, you know, we have some trainings, maybe some videos to watch, um, culture-focused activities that are making a difference, but sometimes also miss, you know, fall short of the ambition of, in, of inclusion. And then in Marketplace and the products and things that we make often, like, we don't know what to do there. We're not sure exactly how to get there. Right. We, we know we're doing accessibility, but, like, do we need to change the gender options on our drop-down menus? Like, what do we? How do? What does inclusion mean there? And I find that very common. It's this: if we change this belief, that hypothesis, that if we change our workforce, it will lead to product. And I have uh, a challenge to that hypothesis, which is if we start with the things that we make, and we start with um, the problems that we're trying to solve. The core, the core of the industry in this region is problem-solving technology, yeah. engineering mindset. 
um, design mindset. And so if we start with that marketplace category and really get clear on what inclusive methods are going to make a difference there and what problems we can each contribute to and solve, then we will have an impact on who do we need. We'll ask the question, who needs to be in the room to help us solve this problem? Oh, we are missing a broad set of perspectives. Let's go seek those out because it's framed by this problem that we need to go solve from an exclusion or inclusion standpoint. And that that path, you know, starting with product and then building out the teams that you need to, to solve that problem can actually be a faster, more effective way to really produce inclusive outcomes. So I think of why now in the context of there's good triggers happening. Yay, it's good for business. It's good for, you know, for uh, human thinking, human-led design thinking. Um, but what to do next is a place where design, I think, really needs to step up and say, we know how to go about thinking about human beings in the making process, uh, the solving of a problem. Let's get explicit on what those activities should be to make more to recognize exclusion, to recognize who's missing from the conversation and bring people in and solve one problem and then the next problem and address one type of exclusion and then the next one. And through that, we will create a shift in culture and through that, we will create a shift in who is contributing as a maker. I love that. So rather than saying inclusion is a culture or maybe even a human resources issue, let's in this region right here, mm -hmm. because we are activated as makers and, yeah. and tinkers and engineers by the thought and idea of making things, about making products and services. So let's use that energy mm -hmm. to actually transform our organizations and ourselves. Yes. Thank you so much for coming and talking to Thank me. You. I'm. I'm excited to read your book. I feel like I know a little more about it, but I'm clearly going to have to wait for the big insights. I'm excited to share it with you. And um, thank you so much for the, the opportunity to really dive into a lot of the topics that the book covers in depth. There's so much more. We'll have to keep talking. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.